Welcome to Two Halves Make a Whole. I'm Aaron Blumenthal. And I'm Mike Sherney. And we're here to bring you potentially useful financial advice. Little tidbits, if, if nothing else. <laughs> and uh, because it is the new year, and because every human being and otherwise is currently setting goals of some sort, and we've talked about it quite a bit recently, we are going to actually talk about setting goals, what that means in terms of sort of your financial life, and like what to do with that information once you have it. So we're going to start out by just what does it mean to set a goal, right? Um, everybody at some point has set a goal. I, I can feel very confident saying that. I just, I just, it's one of those things I don't, I don't know for a fact. I just, I just know. Um, I feel like there's a German word to describe that, but that's a different story. Um, and there's different types of goals that you can set. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the, if you've ever heard the, the acronym SMART, for setting goals, uh, it's one of the ways that you can set something to be specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-based. Yeah, and so this is, the thing is to keep in mind that's pretty task-based, right? It's one of those, you can use it for more development goals, but for the most part, that's, I want to achieve X in specific time frame with these measurable variables, um, and I want to do it, you know, and make sure that it's something I can do. I am a five foot eight man who's slightly overweight, probably a little more than slightly, but I am not going to the NBA anytime soon or professional sports outside of bowling probably. And even then I've never bowled. So it's not, I'm not going there. Like, <laughs> yeah. So that's not realistic. What is realistic for me is I, you know, I could probably lose like 10, 15 pounds. So that is a realistic goal. Um, yeah, more short term versus types of strategy things, right? Exactly. And like, yeah, and there's, and you can think about it in terms of different time frames too. There's, there's short-term goals, right? Something like, here's what my goal for the next hour, for the next day, week, month, year, decade, whatever, right? So you can, so you can make it on those lengths. And then that's actually going to tie in a little bit later. So think about like kind of what is your goal and like what is the time frame that you want to achieve it in? The other way of looking at goals is more development-based, right? And this is more interesting because this is you want to develop something, you don't necessarily have to have a strict uh, endpoint to this. And, but what you want to make sure is that you can actually do something to achieve that, right? Yeah. And you don't even need necessarily specific steps that are going to get you there. Things will change over time and they may lead you down a slightly different path than what you had forecast. Yeah, exactly. And then another thing that will come up again later, uh, there is a Stoic philosopher, uh, Epictetus, who said, there, it's called the dichotomy of control. There are things that you can control wholly, and there are things that you, and then there's everything else which you can't. So the things you can control are your emotions, your thoughts, and your actions. And everything else, including your own body, you cannot control, right? To some extent, you can control your body, but you, you, know, you, you don't know if you're gonna break your knee or whatever. So keeping that dichotomy of control in mind, you need to think about what can you actually do, right? And so that, that actually brings us to the next point, which there's a, there's an author, a financial, I don't know, guru is the right word. His name is Ramit Sethi, and he and his his philosophy is, what do, what do you want your money to do for you, and what does your good life look like? So, what he means by this, and I think this is a pretty concise way of actually talking about financial goals, is, what do you what do you want your life to look like? Right, money is. Honestly, it's, it's 
It's intangible and it's something we exchange for something else. Money in and of itself should not necessarily be the goal. It is, it is nice and it does buy things that could potentially make you happier, but that is not necessarily your end all be all. So what, what does your good life look like? So try to, that, that'll make it seem more real to you as opposed to something that can feel a bit uh, sterile, if you will. Right. So say if you wanted to save a million dollars, just to say I'm going to save a million dollars, but to what end, right? Is it so that you can have some sort of financial freedom? Is it so you can purchase that house you've been looking for? Is it so you can have money to go to school or send your kids to school? It's not just the fact of having a million dollars, but having those goals that you set up either short term or those developmental longer term goals then kind of dictate how much money you're going to end up saving to achieve those ends. Yeah. And then the other thing is it helps with motivation. I think about how many times you've heard your friends, parents, someone around you say, I'm, I'm going to lose 15 pounds and think about how many times they actually do it. The number of the times that people say that versus the number of times that people do it is substantially different, right? And the reason is because just saying, I'm going to lose 15 pounds, what that, that, yeah, what does that mean? Right. Yeah, it doesn't, it means nothing. So saying, okay, well, I want to play with my kids or I don't have kids, so I literally don't know why I said that. <laughs> you got a dog though. It's yeah, like I have a dog. Same yeah, same thing. So yeah, I want to play with my dog better. I want to, you know, I want to be able to, to go on a run, uh, to, you know, do a race or something. That's a goal that now I have a reason, I have a date, I have something that I'm going towards. And that's going to make those runs, those workouts, whatever, it's going to make them so much more enjoyable. Because now you're, if you ever get down, you just think about the reason you're doing that. And money is the same way. Think about, look, I'm saving for thing X when you were a kid or you know, maybe as an adult. Knowing that that thing was there made it easier for you to focus on that as opposed to I'm depriving myself now. Uh, unfortunately, we as human beings, uh, most of us hope, you know, probably hopefully have, have drives, innate drives. And one of those is, uh, is the fact that evolution really hasn't kicked up with us yet. So, you know, when I eat, my body still thinks I'm a European peasant. So I put on 15 pounds. And, like, and the issue is, is this problem of scarcity. It's the same thing with money. I think, oh, shoot, this is scarce. I must save it and then I lock down everything and then I get super defeated after six, you know, six days, month, whatever. So the, the ability to turn and say, oh, look, here's what this goal is. And to say, that's why I'm doing this. That, that pulls some of that internal struggle, if you will, that, uh, that stress, it, it takes it away. Yeah, totally agree. It's, it's really what you want to do, why you want to do it and what drives you there. And it could be any number of different things that is going to take some amount of financial planning on your part. And it, it sounds really complicated, right? But there's, there's a lot of different steps you can take to be able to get there. So if it, if it is a house or a car, uh, there's, there's a lot of different ways you can start to plan to be able to do those things. And it may be saving a portion of your paycheck. It may be looking into investments that could pay off over time to get you there. And it's going to likely be a multi-tiered approach. One of the things I kind of, I, I've kind of lived by is you should have more than one type of income stream, whether it's from investments in different ways. It could be a stock market, it could be cryptocurrencies like we talked about last week. It could be, um, you know, rental properties. It could be a side job. It could be a hobby that you sell certain things for to make additional money in addition, in addition to just your, your full-time job. And having that is a much more, I'll say secure way or 
it, it's going to be tougher, but it's more fulfilling way of achieving your financial goals or other goals that you set that need financial goals to be able to obtain. Yeah, no, exactly. And building off of that, if you, if you don't know what that, what that looks like, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't, if it's hard to, once again, if that's like an abstract con concept right now, think about going back to that smart goal. What does realistic look like for you, right? Like we're talking about buying cars and, and houses and whatnot. Maybe that's not realistic for you. Maybe saving up for rent, maybe, you know, like getting a bicycle. These are the things that, so build it up, make it realistic, make it something that's, a, that is attainable. Um, and that, and there's no shame in that. There is no shame. Uh, one of the things that my dad told me growing up, uh, I was, I was really little and someone mispronounced a word and he, he yelled at me for, um, for, ma for making fun of the person for mis for misspelling it. Uh, mispronouncing it. And he says, listen, if, if that person mispronounced it, that means they read it in a book, which means they're trying to make themselves better. And you should never, ever criticize someone for that. And like, I, I take that with this as well, right? There's, if, if you're struggling to make ends meet and you're trying to push things that direction, there's no harm in setting, in setting what seems a lesser goal. Don't look at it that way. You're trying to make yourself better. Absolutely. And, and you can have, again, like there's shorter term goals, longer term goals, medium term goals, and you can have steps to getting and achieving all of those things to get whatever it is that you necessarily want to do. You just have to figure out what it is that you're looking for and then set that path in motion versus just saying an abstract, I'm going to do X, say, lose weight, buy a house, etc. Yeah. And, and then really not have a plan or a path to getting there. And that's really what that kind of comes down to. So you can set that goal, but that goal requires a plan to be able to achieve those ends. Yeah. And I guess let's sort of, let's kind of build off of that. So, so let's, let's kind of look at, we'll call it another dichotomy, if you will. Right. So two paths, we'll, we'll call it sort of middle wealth and we'll call it, you know, not as able to afford things. And so if you're not, if you, if you only have, you know, a couple extra dollars a month or a week or whatever, uh, honestly, even just, $5 is a sufficient amount to start investing. It might seem small, but think about like you're going to build that over time. And there's, uh, there's two equations that use exponential growth. A pert, uh, yeah, so um, it's, it's pert and a pert. And basically this is saying that like, look, you, you have a little bit in the beginning and over time it's going to exponentially grow. And so that's, that's the same here. So over time, things will exponentially grow. So it's, even a little amount you can start investing. But remember this, there are essentially, we'll call it two axes, like two things that you need to kind of keep in mind. And one of them is, is when do you need the, the money to make this, to make your good life, to make, you know, to achieve your goals. And then on the other end, you know, how much can you do? How much can you save? Those are the sort of two opposing things, right? Because, a lot of people talk about risk management, but that's if if you're just beginning this, this is that's an esoteric con like concept that that doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't it doesn't have a real value to you yet. So think about like when do you need it? If it's if it's in a long long time, then you don't need to take crazy risks, right? Like if you if you're gonna have a horizon of ten years, you don't need to take the same risks that you that you do if you're gonna retire or you need it in two years. These are, these are two very, very different ends. So just so to keep, so keep that in mind and then, yeah, how much can you invest? And there, 
no matter how difficult it is, most people, and I, and I will admit there are some people that can't, but most people should be able to get at least a dollar, a couple dollars out a week. And that's, it might not seem like much, but that's enough, like I said, with compound interest and with, you know, sort of some of the growth factors to, to start making something. Absolutely. There's a, there's many different types of I'll say investments that you can make and even putting anything away. So what Aaron was talking about earlier was just, uh, you might hear the term liquidity and how much liquidity do you need, right? So if you're in a bank account, like a savings account or a checking account, you have immediate liquidity. You can quickly pull the cash out. You can do whatever you want with it. If you have it tied up in a CD or into a house or something else, you're much less liquid because you can't close it out without some type of penalty. Yeah. And based on whatever your goal is, you're going to set types of liquidity. Uh, many people have 401k plans either on their own or through their employer. And that is typically illiquid, not liquid, right? You're looking at that for a retirement basis. So that's a long-term goal to be able to retire comfortably, not have to continue working. That's your financial goal and how much you're putting away for it. But for things that are more near-term for paying your bills every month, for paying off a credit card, for paying off whatever else it is, you're going to need more liquid funds to be able to do those things. Yeah. Another way of thinking about this, um, we're always told money doesn't grow on trees, but let's, let's assume for a second that we're going to use the analogy of a fruit tree. It can be oranges, apples, whatever. The liquid assets is literally that water that you have now, right? It's that it's what you need to, to get just the things done, right? You need water as a human being to, to survive. You need, you need this in order to be able to do other things. If you have time, the longer you have, the more you can let that, that tree grow. And then you can make it solid, if you will. You've invested it. You've put it in. Eventually, you will get fruit out. Um, and so that's, and that's something that you can eat now and you'll be able to sustain yourself longer. I know this is hokey is, is all, is all get out. Basically all I really, really wanted to say was, yeah, that you can, that it, you can eventually make it essentially grow on trees and then I'll get a return on your investment. Yeah. And kind of going back to, it doesn't matter where you start. There's, there's the proverb that every human being I feel has heard, which is the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. Absolutely. Yeah, there's really, it's never, I'll say, too late to start in any type of investment. You may feel like you've missed the ball, and in some ways, you can say you have, but there's always new opportunities, right? Last last episode, we talked about cryptocurrencies, and if you had jumped into Bitcoin 10 years ago and put $100 in, you'd have more than a million dollars right now. Does that mean the opportunities are gone? No, it just means that that opportunity for that amount of crazy gain in 10 years might be passed, but there might be new opportunities that are going to present themselves and they may come in many different forms and you just have to look for them. We didn't even know about it back then. We weren't looking for it. It seemed kind of hokey, like a hoax, like it, it wasn't going to pay off. It was a very risky investment. Looking back, it's obvious, but so is everything looking backwards and it's how you start to understand and kind of keep those things in mind for where you can put your money, what kind of makes sense where you have that risk factor, right? So as, as you start to weigh out different risky or different types of risk in your investments, whether it's just a savings account, whether it's in cryptocurrency, whether it's in stocks and what types of risks you're willing to take, uh, you manage your money and put those in, put it in those places based on that level of risk. Yeah, exactly. An another way of thinking about this, going back to that, you know, like what do you, what do you want your life to look like is mindset. Another is, so... 
you'll hear some investors talk about nerve. Um, you'll hear you know different terms used, but basically, don't freak out is essentially the base thing, right? No matter what the market looks like, go on Google, go on Google Finance, type in yeah, look at the NYSE, and then go to all time, and you will see a growth curve that goes upwards. It doesn't matter. Things will drop. Things will go up. They'll go in crazy different directions. The thing is, and this is super difficult, and I say this as someone who did sell stock before, <laughs> uh, you know, like right as it was crashing, and then only to see it go up, you, you need to like relax. It goes back to that dichotomy of control from Epictetus. I, I know this, this is super squishy considering everything else we've talked about, but another way of thinking about it is that is outside of your control, right? That is something that isn't a thought, an action, or a feeling, an emotion. This is something that you can't control. You, it's difficult, but you separate yourself from that emotion, and that's going to allow you to think clearly about things. The, the one thing to keep in mind is that um, you'll hear this concept of externalities, and specifically that externalities are all factored in on the, on the price of a stock, and it's almost instantaneous. So, Efficient markets. Exactly. So by the time, suppose you get a hot tip from one of your, from one of your friends and he heard it on the radio or something. Man, the radio, that is whatever. Just ignore, <laughs> ignore that. Yourself. I know, I'm dating myself. <laughs> like, but basically the thing is, it's all, by the time you put your trade in, the market's already reacted. So it's one of those you need to, to step back and think about it. It's once again, this goes back to what is the time frame that you have? If it's a long time frame, you don't need to react. Just you can buy simpler things and you can do less. Yeah, I'll be frank, interesting things, but you're going to be able to get what you want versus if you need it shorter period of time, then yes, you're going to want to take riskier things. But you, but remember, you still need to have your wits about you, if you will. You need to, you need to understand the difference between what's within your control and what's without. Definitely. There's a lot of external factors that are going to impact the market and they can impact it positively, negatively, things that literally make no sense. Like when the market continues to rise as tons of people are out of work this year, it's been interesting. There's other factors that do play a role in that, but like, Honestly, two of the best pieces of advice you can really give most uh, novice or new investors is A, <laughs> sell high, buy low, and uh, invest in index funds because the market as a whole, if you're looking at the New York Stock Exchange and you're looking at the Dow Jones Industrials or the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ, you're going to see that trend over time is typically up. And by buying an index fund in that space, you can look back to when the stock market crashed in 2008 and the Dow went down to 6,000 points. If you had put your, not advocating to do this, but if you had put your life savings into the Dow in 2000, March what, 9th or 11th, 2009, when it was at its yeah. lowest point, you'd have six times your money or five times your money yeah. right now, just based on where the Dow has moved. And it's gone through some big dips within that time. But just looking back, right, what else could you have put your money in well, other than Bitcoin, <laughs> that that would, realistically would have achieved that with relatively low levels of risk, right? Bitcoin's super volatile has gone up and down through huge swings. Um, the Dow has gone through some swings, but they're nowhere near as volatile. And it's it's buffered by the 30 stocks that are on the index. Yeah. 
I exactly. And kind of building off that, it isn't sexy, but it's sort of the eat your fruits and veggies and eat less than you uh, than you use and energy. Uh, you know, eat eat less, move more. Of you know, investing in finance. It's index, simple index funds. Buy low, sell high. It's it it. But it. But remember, that's those are we hear those all the time because they work. And yes, you are going to hear about about people that that got insane amounts of money or lost insane amounts of weight or you know got huge or whatever. The thing is, at the end of the day, what they did, no matter how drastic it was, essentially boil down to those two things. And it's discipline. The other thing that, that you'll get from those index funds is you're not going to have to actively trade them, right? You just kind of buy and hold. It, it's really time-consuming to day trade. I'll, I'll tell you that as someone who does it, it's very time-consuming researching everything about certain stocks and trying to beat that market before those tips or that news hits it on, on what's going to be the next hot thing. And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And all in all, there's been a number of studies actually on people that compete against index funds and almost always they lose or meet the index fund but with an extraordinary amount of time invested into doing it. And if you enjoy it because you learn a lot of stuff from it, I'm not going to tell you not to do it. But once you purchase an index fund, you're really not sitting there watching it on a daily basis. You can kind of just let it ride, enjoy your time, you know, be present with people that you're with, do what other things that you want to work on. And just more or less trust that it's going to continue to rise over time. Yeah. Like we were literally talking about this before this, that, you know, I, I do uh, in, like index funds. I, I do a way where I'm able to purchase a bunch and kind of jettison stocks that I'm not, that I don't necessarily want and sort of a fund that, that I have. But that's, that's what I do. That, like the other way of thinking about it is hedge funds. Awesome, awesome things in movies. In unless you want to burn money to make money, like <laughs> everybody's friend in high school, it's not necessarily gonna work for you. In fact, there's most of the time they actually don't do as well as uh, as, as any of the indexes. They got wrecked at the beginning of this year. Oh, most yeah. most hedge funds absolutely got wrecked with the coronavirus lockdown. And basically, what they all are is someone has a magic formula or a magic algorithm, and that's what they're gonna stick by. And sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But that. But once again, go back and look, actually take a look at the lifetime of the NYSE or NASDAQ, Hang Sen, any of them, and you'll see that over time, they all go up. It's, it's all about, yeah, just what, how do you want to spend your time? It's that life that you want to live. And what's your goal and what do you want to do with it? And as you're, as you're looking at those index funds and you're comparing it to hedge funds, there's, there's a lot of hidden costs that people don't normally talk about when they're talking about trading. So most in, uh, I'll say most brokerages now don't charge you a fee to trade unless you're trading penny stocks. So that more or less has gone away, but you still have other costs, right? When you're buying an ETF or an index fund, there's typically some sort of cost ratio uh, that's associated with it. Buying those ETFs or index funds have very, very low costs because you're not paying someone to actively invest for you. So your expense ratio is typically less than 0.1%. When you're looking at actively managed portfolios or hedge funds especially, you're paying almost a 20% premium of whatever your profits end up being. If you make any profits, you're still paying a super high expense ratio in addition to that. And then if you do make money, you're paying 
huge amounts of capital gains tax because it's typically a short-term investment. When you're putting into an index fund, you're going to hold for several years. Once you hit that one-year mark, you're paying long-term tax on it. And it's significantly lower. I don't remember what the exact numbers are. I think it's like 15%. Versus yeah, I think it's 15 versus whatever. whatever your, well, yeah, whatever yeah. your bracket is. Yeah, yeah whatever I'm your sure. tax bracket is. Uh, so it, it could be significantly uh, advantageous to buy and then hold it because say if you were to make say your tax bracket your effective tax ratio is about 30 percent and you were to make 10 percent on a stock but the index fund made five percent well if you held the index fund for that year that next year when you say you sold it right you needed the cash for something you sell it the tax you're going to pay on it is half of what you would have done with active trading even if you made double the income because the taxes took away that difference Oh yeah. The, another way of thinking about this is, um, both Charlie Munger, uh, who's the number two behind, uh, Warren Buffett and Warren Buffett, the Oracle of Omaha, the sort of Babe Ruth of investing, if you will, the only one that people really know other than like Ray Dalio, um, who I'll get to in a sec. Um, <laughs> but they both say buy things that you know, right? Like if you need it and not, and not like I need, you know, something that's faddish, but like something you need. That is always going to be a good investment because if you need it, other people ostensibly need it as well. Um, so that's that's a way of looking at it. The other the other way is uh, is Ray Dalio. So he has a hedge fund, but the way the way his hedge fund works is they actually don't do what a lot of other managers do, which is you know I've created this magic formula. What instead they do is they actually they go and read history books. They read po- books of poetry. They read all of these different things, um, and they say, "Okay, here's how markets performed in the long run. Not just you know the the record of the stock market, but here's what happens with Bulba mania in uh, you know in the Netherlands during the uh, during the seventeenth sixteenth seventeenth century. Here's what happened here, and they're able to then make inferences off of that. So it's one of those. And then another person that did this was Thomas Piketty a French economist who wrote um, a book about capital. I think it's actually called Capital. Um, and basically he, he looked and he went through the works of Dickens and he went through you know, the Bible and he went through different, different books and he showed, okay, this is how much this was worth at this time. Here's how much a, a loaf of bread, a gallon of milk, a cubit of, of wheat. Here's how much it cost then. Here's how much it costs now. And he was able to show quite interestingly that the growth of wages over time is linear. And what that means is just think a straight line, right? It just, it goes, it goes, you know, at a, at a slight angle. The growth of capital is exponential. The, the amount of capital that you have, if you were able to somehow go back in time uh, and buy parcels of land, buy, buy part, you know, something that is capital and you held it, it had exponential growth over time and you would be fabulously wealthy. So it's, that's another way of looking at it. Don't, you don't necessarily have to take the monetary view of it. Look at it as that's even in, even in literature, it shows that there's this huge ad, uh, advantageous effect of capital. Definitely. There's a, there's always a risk to a no risk situation, right? And having your cash sitting in a savings account, making, less than a percent is no risk. Your money will never technically lose value, but in relation to things that are increasing in value, 
such as certain stocks, cryptocurrencies, land, real estate, etc., your money's actually technically losing value potentially in relation to inflation. If the inflation rate is higher than what you're yielding on your savings account, your buying power is actually dropping even though you're making money on your money because you're not making enough money on your money fast enough. And so that, that linear uh, trend of your, your cash will increase over time, or if you look at your salary and your wages increasing at a few percent every year, it's always that same few percent. And while you're technically building on a bigger base, other assets are building that base at a faster rate. And so by understanding what that, essentially, again, what your goal is, what your um, risk tolerance is for certain types of things, having that diversification to keep your cap, some cash safe, because you always want to have cash if you need it, but being able to invest in other things helps you grow that account faster to then be able to achieve your financial goals. Yeah. Another, another way of thinking about this is, um, and if you, and if the way you want to live your life is to get a boat by all means, but it's <laughs> a good goal. Yeah, it is, it's actually a pretty decent goal, but the, the reason people call boats rusting assets, but houses are not rusting assets, if you will, is there's a difference between capital and expensive things. Uh, and I know that sounds... Depreciating assets versus appreciating assets. Exactly. Yeah. It's Another way of thinking about it is, what is, an, what is when you buy a house, when you, when you pay taxes on a house, there's actually two portions of it. There's... What's known, well, there's the lands, right? That's the sort of actual capital to some extent. And then there's improvement, right? That's, that's literally the term in, in, like, in tax laws is a house is an improvement on the, on the parcel of land. A boat doesn't have that land. It merely is just the improvement itself. It's definitely not improving the water. And it's not, it <laughs> for sure isn't. Uh, especially the way some people drive boats. So like, <laughs> The, that's that's sort of the difference the difference in thinking about this right there's there's things that don't have that have inherent value but aren't necessarily going to grow over time and then there are things that have this inherent value but do grow over time and those are for some to some extent useful right gold is another example of this so gold in and of itself unless you do electronics and you're using it as a, as a conductor, actually isn't necessarily the best use of money, so to speak, but we assign it value and that value grows over time. It has an inherent value of the properties of its luster, of its, you know, of the way it looks, of how it's used versus steel, right? Which rusts. Which rusts. And gold does not. And gold does not. So that's another way of thinking about it. Is just does is this does this have actual inherent value, or is the inherent value in the thing being used for something else? Steel, going back to that example, gold, the inherent value is itself. Steel, you got to make a bridge, a car, something, something needs to be made out of the steel for that to have value. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, hopefully, uh, you guys found. Some of these ramblings helpful. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And if you have suggestions, by all means, reach out to us. Leave us some comments. Yeah. And with that, I am Aaron Blumenthal. And I'm Mike Cherney. We are Two Halves Make a Whole, and we'll see you guys next week. Sounds good. Talk to you guys soon.